You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on the sixth Sunday after Pentecost, July 21st, 2019. A reading from the book of Genesis. And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth, and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into his tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, I'm going to guess that most of you have heard about a man named Walt Disney. You heard about that guy? Yes. Yes. He's a little important in our state. Uh, he, he provided, uh, and still provides, even after his death, uh, a large portion of our economy here. Uh, what is Walt Disney best known for? Mickey Mouse, of course. And his friends, Donald and Pluto and Goofy and, and all the other ones. Which one? A Daisy. Don't forget Daisy. Can't forget Daisy. So these are the things that we remember Walt Disney for. And they're, they're good things. They're fun cartoons. But I think the enduring legacy of Walt Disney is not so much in Mickey Mouse or any of the other cartoon figures. I think it's in the area of hospitality. Because Walt Disney had a tremendous vision for hospitality. He was obsessed with providing the guests in his park with remarkable experiences. He was concerned about the smallest details in those parks, like the location of garbage cans and water fountains. And his hospitality philosophy still governs uh, the parks that still bear his name today. His philosophy dominates the industry. And in the hospitality industry, everybody has learned from Walt Disney. I think that is his greatest enduring legacy, 
in our world. But the thing is, Walt Disney did not invent hospitality. Hospitality has been around for centuries and ages. It's something that I'm sure all of you have practiced from one time to another. And it was something, uh, and still is something, that I think is very dear and important to the heart of God. Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see instruction from God about the importance of showing hospitality even to strangers. And in the Old Testament, it's baked into the law that God provided to his people in the first five books of the Bible. Hospitality was essential. And I think there's a number of reasons for this. Maybe the chief one being the fact that God's people were strangers in a strange land. They lived in Egypt. They sojourned there for a long time. And during that time, they became oppressed, and they became slaves, and they were mistreated. And so coming out of there, all through the book of Deuteronomy, over and over and over again, God reminds his people that they were once slaves in Egypt, and because of that, they need to make sure that they treat the sojourners in their own land, when they come into it, with the dignity and respect that they wish they would have had when they were in the land of Egypt. So hospitality is very important to God and to the people of God. Middle Eastern hospitality uh, is pretty remarkable when it comes down to it. Even today, it's changed a little bit, but still some of the customs and practices that we read in the Bible are things that you will still observe if you go visit Israel today or other places in the Middle East. When Abraham sees the visitors in this passage today, he urges them to stay, and then he hurries to tell Sarah and his servants to prepare a lavish meal. Now, that's not what he tells the visitors. He says, come and stay here, and, and, and I will give you a morsel of bread and, and some water to wash your feet. But what he provides them is so much more than a morsel of bread and some water to wash their feet. First of all, he instructs his wife to prepare three seahs of flour. Now, I don't know if you're up to speed on your Jewish weights and measures. But if you look in the Old Testament, a siah is about two gallons. Now, how many of you uh, are bread makers? Have you ever made bread before? How many cups of flour do you need to make a couple of loaves of bread? Two, two cups, maybe two to four cups of flour for a couple of loaves of bread. So a siah is two gallons. He was asking his wife to prepare six gallons of flour and make bread with it. That's a lot more than a few morsels of bread for these three visitors. And then he goes to his servant, and he doesn't tell them to slaughter a sheep or a goat. That would have been perfectly reasonable and respectable. He tells them to slaughter a calf and prepare it. Now, a calf is a lot of meat. It takes a lot more than three men to eat a calf's worth of meat. So he goes above and beyond. He wants to make these guests feel welcome. And then when the feast is finally ready, he presents it with milk and curds, and then he stands aside under the shade of the tree and waits and watches to make sure that they have everything that they need and that he's provided for them well and has been a good host. This was very important to Abraham, and it was important across his whole culture. Abraham was a nomad. He moved from place to place. And for any nomad, it was important to rely on the hospitality of strangers for places to water your animals, for places to find food when you were traveling from one place to another. It was an essential skill, and that's yet another reason why it was baked into Middle Eastern culture. 
But the really interesting thing about this story is that when Abraham begins making all these preparations, there's no indication that he knows who it is that he's hosting. When we first read about these three visitors, it says that he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He was taking his siesta, his his nap. It gets very hot in the middle of the day, and so everybody lies down and takes a nap. And he lifts up his eyes and looks, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. No indication about who they were, no indication about where they came from, just three men. And this was the standard level of hospitality that Abraham would have provided to anybody who happened to stop by. One commentator says this, He says, as far as Abraham was concerned, this warm-hearted hospitality was just the proper way to entertain visitors. But is the reader, who knows who they are, also meant to reflect on how appropriate these offerings are? Elsewhere in the Pentateuch, the best wheat flour, which is what he told Sarah to prepare, is only used in cereal offerings and for making bread of the presence. And the regulations about sacrifice constantly insist on the necessity of offering only top-quality animals. The narrative may be hinting that he is behaving more wisely than he realized. Abraham provides an example of a model host, entertaining these visitors not knowing who they were. And maybe it's this very story that the author of Hebrews is referring to when he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This story, as we come to find out, is an example of an Old Testament theophany. And a theophany is an incident or an event where God appears in a physical, tangible way to someone in the Old Testament. And this is not the only theophany. We can think of other stories. Even Abraham himself had a number of these theophany experiences, Think of Melchizedek, that uh, strange and mysterious king in the wilderness who appears after a battle, king of peace and king of Salem, and he comes out and, and, uh, and serves a feast of bread and wine. And then Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoil of what was gained from the battle. Now, who else can we think of that prepares a feast and offers bread and wine? Jesus does. Jesus does. So it's yet another example of a theophany, a physical, tangible experience of the Lord. Or perhaps you could think of one of the many times when the angel of the Lord appears and speaks on behalf of God. And many times the indication is that angel of the Lord is an appearance of the Lord himself to that person. One commentator says that theophanies served to forcibly impress upon God's people the existence and sovereignty of God as well as to assure them of God's presence with and concern for his people. It's easy to believe that God is distant and out there somewhere. Theophanies and the recording of these theophanies in the Old Testament and the New Testament remind us that God is not just out there somewhere, but is nearer to us than we can possibly imagine. That he's ever present to us. And that he knows our needs before we even ask. And that he cares about us deeply. And so these theophanies, these appearances of God, serve that purpose in the Bible. They show us that God is, in fact, real. And that he is tangible. 
and that he is personable and that he loves us and cares about us. As the story progresses, it becomes clear that these visitors didn't just happen to pass by this way. They had come intentionally to Abraham and to his grouping of tents, and they had a particular message to share on this occasion. It was a very important message. But surprisingly, this message was not for Abraham. God had appeared to Abraham on other occasions and had told him a number of times that he was to have descendants. In one case, he says that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. On another occasion, he says that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand. Abraham has gotten this message. He knows what God's intention and plan for him is. This message was prepared for Sarah. How do we know this? Well, as the the visitors finish what they're eating, it says that Abraham stood by them under the tree while they ate. And then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Now that's a clue right there. How did they know his wife's name was Sarah? Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. Of course God knows she's in the tent. This is a rhetorical question. Um, But God wanted to make sure that it was clear who it was that he was speaking to. This was not a message for Abraham. This was a message for Sarah. And then he continues. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. God knew she was standing there. God knew she was listening. And this message was for her. I'm sure Abraham had told her before about God's visions to him, about God's messages to him, about the promise of land and the promise of descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. We know Sarah was aware of this because of some of the other interactions she had with Abraham in the past. And yet God comes to visit on this day to share this message once again, not with Abraham, but with Sarah. And then it says, Uh, after she hears this message from the Lord. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? By this she means the pleasure of children. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? The Jesus Storybook Bible is a a Bible I love reading to my own kids, but also it's the the book I use when preschoolers come for chapel on Wednesdays here. And it has a wonderful telling of this story of Abraham and Sarah and the Lord visiting them. And this is how it interprets Sarah's laugh. Now, when Abraham's wife Sarah heard God's promise, she just laughed to herself. But it wasn't a happy laugh. It had tears in it. She had always wanted a baby. Could her dream come true? Could she really have a baby when she was 90 years old? No, of course not. Don't be silly. It was far too late. Sarah didn't believe what God had promised. And that's why God came to visit her on this day. Sarah had ceased to believe in what God had promised. God had promised this son long before this moment, But after years of waiting, Sarah had ceased to believe that it would come true. 
After all, she was well past her childbearing years. And this passage specifically mentions that the way of women had ceased with her. She was not physically able to have children at this stage in her 90-year-old life. And this situation shows us two common responses as we wait for God's promises. The first is that we take matters into our own hands. And this is the technique that Sarah had tried first. After waiting for some time for this promise of progeny to come true, she finally said, enough of waiting. Abraham, why don't you take my maidservant to be your concubine, and why don't you have a child with my maidservant, Hagar, and then you'll have progeny, then you'll have someone to pass everything down to. This was an important thing in Middle Eastern culture. It's still an important thing in many cultures, including our own, but not nearly as important as it was back then. Because your children were your retirement plan. Your children were your legacy. Your children were the ones that carry on all that you've worked for so hard in your whole life. And so if you didn't have a child in that culture, and especially if you didn't have a male child, it was a shameful thing. This is why there was such bitterness and sadness in Sarah's laughter. And so she takes matters into her own hands. She gives her maidservant to Abraham. They do have a son, Hagar and Abraham, together. They call him Ishmael. And then what happens is the same thing that happens in every other instance that we have in the Old Testament where a man takes more than one wife. Jealousy breaks out. And why wouldn't it? Women, right? If your husband married another woman, there would certainly be jealousy. And this is exactly what happens to the point where Sarah insists that this woman, Hagar, that she had given to her husband to be yet another wife, she insists that Abraham send her and her son away into the wilderness so that they might perish in the desert. It doesn't go well. It never goes well. And the Old Testament specifically says, don't have more than one wife, and this is exactly why. So Sarah tried to take matters into her own hands, and it didn't work out well for her. That's a common response that we often have when we're waiting on God's promises. We wait long enough and we get fed up and we become impatient. We say, enough of this. I'm going to do it on my own. But then the other thing that is common is that we cease to believe that God's promises will come true at all. And this is the place where we find Sarah at today. After trying to take matters into her own hands, after waiting even longer, she finally comes to a place where she ceased to believe that God's promises are true and that they will come true for her at all. This is resignation. And this, too, is a common response as we wait for God's promises to come true. We resign ourselves to the fact that maybe they're never going to come true, that maybe we didn't hear God clearly, that maybe we misunderstood him, or that maybe God isn't as powerful as we thought he was. But neither of these ways are what we're called to as believers in God. There is, in fact, a third way. And Paul talks to us about it in the book of Romans. Here he's talking about waiting for God to set everything right in the world, for the end of all things to come, where God will judge the world and put all things back together in the way they were supposed to be. And the redemption of our bodies. And then he says in chapter 8, verse 24, Now hope that is seen is not hope. 
For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And this third way is the way that we are called to as followers of God. We're called to wait for it, wait for his promises with patience. Sometimes it takes a long time because God's time is not our time. But when we hear his voice, when we have the assurance of his promises, we need to wait with patience for them to come true. God's timing can be a mystery to us. And we are all impatient by nature when it comes down to it. But God calls us to wait for him and to continue to believe. Now this patience isn't something that we muster up on our own strength. In fact, it's listed among the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. It's something that God has to put in our hearts because, again, naturally, we are impatient people. We want things to happen quickly. And I think this is only increasing in our culture today where everything is so instant. Fast food, fast internet, fast cars, fast planes, fast whatever you want. You can have it. Two-day shipping, Amazon. It takes no time at all. We're conditioned to be impatient. We don't want to wait for things. And more, more, more and more every year. In our own lives, uh, Carrie and I knew many years ago that God was calling us back into parish ministry. I was still working at Trinity School for Ministry. I enjoyed my job. I loved my job. I felt called to do what I was doing. But years before God would call us out of Trinity, he had put on our hearts to return to parish ministry. We knew that that was God's call for us. We heard it clearly. And so we began to wait and pray for it. And sometimes the waiting got really hard. And sometimes we tried to take matters into our own hands and apply for all kinds of jobs that really were not right for us at all. And other times we stopped believing that maybe it would ever come true. But God gave us the grace of patience. And he allowed us to wait and to pray and to hope. And eventually, he made the way for us to be sent to you here in Florida, a place we never thought we would ever live. But we're so glad that we're here. Thank you. We waited for it with patience. Sometimes well, sometimes not so well. And that's the way it goes in all of our lives. What are you hoping for? What is it in your life that you've been praying for for years? I know many of you are praying for your children to turn to the Lord. I know some of you are praying for a significant change in your health. Maybe you're praying for something that you haven't mentioned to anyone because the desire is so deep in your heart and it hurts your heart even to say something about it. These are the deep desires of our hearts. And the Lord does hear them. He hears every thought of your heart, every desire that you have. And we need to listen for his voice in these matters, to wrestle with him and try very hard to hear his voice clearly. And then when we do hear his voice, we need to keep praying into the promises that he gives us until he has fulfilled those promises. Sometimes it comes quickly. And other times, it takes a very long time. Returning to Genesis, when the Lord hears Sarah's laugh, he says, 
Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. It's an emphatic no to that question. It's a rhetorical question. Again, it's obvious what the answer is. No, there is nothing that's too hard for the Lord. He created everything and he's sovereign over all of it. There is nothing that's too hard for him to accomplish. If it's in his will, he will do it. One year later, the Lord does return to Sarah, just as he's promised. And when he does return, Sarah has a son in her arms. In Genesis chapter 21, just a couple chapters later, it recounts the story in this way. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. It happened in just the time that God had said. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, and God, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Can you imagine having a son at 100 years old or 90 years old for Sarah, 91 at this point? That's incredible. It doesn't happen. But with God, all things are possible. Now, the thing that you don't catch from that, if you don't understand the Hebrew language, is that the name Isaac means he laughs. He laughs. When we continue to Genesis 21, verse 6, it says, And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And yet, I have borne him a son in his old age. When Abraham first heard the promise of God, he laughed. Maybe it was a joy, joyful laughter. Maybe it was a sorrowful laughter like Sarah's. When Sarah heard the promise of God, she laughed. She didn't think it could come true. But it did come true. And their son was named, he laughs. What a joyful thing. No matter what you're going through, God is powerful and mighty. In the book of Hebrews, when it reflects back on this experience, it says this about Sarah. Chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. This experience, this theophany, this appearing of God to Abraham and Sarah, reinforced her belief in God, reinforced her belief in God's promises. And she believed that God had power to help her conceive. And she had faith that what God promised was true and that it would come to fruition. We have a God who always keeps his promises. God is powerful and mighty and he's able to do even impossible things. And when he promises something, it is as good as done. But we need to wait for it with patience. Not in our time, but in God's time. Because God's time is always the perfect time.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of Abraham and Sarah. We thank you for your promises to them, but also your faithfulness to them. We thank you for showing us their faith, but also their doubts. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with faith. That you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That you would give us patience to wait with hope for the things that you've promised to us. Help us to hear your voice clearly. And when we hear your voice, help us to wait for it with patience. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org slash sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.